going to start a new series today, and also our groups start this week, so we're excited about that. Yeah, Our groups are kicking off this week, and I uh, hope you're part of a group. If you're not, you can still get involved, of course. Uh, Northwood.church slash groups. You can look at all of our groups, sign up for a group, but um, groups are starting this week. We've got some amazing groups uh, to be a part of as well. But we're starting a new series today, and some of you are in sermon-based groups, and so you'll be talking about this again this week in your group. But um, the name of the series is uh, Out of Context, um, and uh, well, we've been talking about this for a couple of years. Man, we need to do a series on what people say. You know, when they take a verse out of context and they say this thing, and it gets, you know, everybody talks about it, and maybe even put it on, your, uh, put it on a sign on your bathroom wall, you know, you got it out of your house, or, you know, bumper stickers, and what these things people say, the crazy things people say, they're not even in the Bible. And so we finally decided, let's, let's take a few weeks and do this. And so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do that. Um, and um, it's one thing. It's one thing to know the scriptures. It's another thing to quote things that aren't in the Bible. You know, and then you find out later that you said something or you've been saying something, and almost get defensive, like, "Well, at least it was good," you know. <laughs> but uh, people do it all the time. I'm sure you've been misunderstood when you're trying to say something. Uh, I, I have a, a thing where I I won't get into an argument uh, or a deep conversation over text message because you can't, you can't feel the emotion, right? I mean, you don't want to get in. Wait a minute. Let's wait till we're face-to-face and talk about this because then you can see my face and see me going, no, or look at the anger in my eyes or whatever it is. You can feel the emotion. But so often people are misunderstood. Uh, and, and when we are misunderstood, we often are taken out of context. It's not what I meant, right? Um, you see it in people's social media posts. You see it in conversations that we have day to day, even in statistics. Sometimes statistics are taken out of context. You know, uh, like we were talking about, you know, God's growing the church 30% and one person could say, yay. And one person could say, all they talk about is numbers there. You know, like what? If you knew my heart, you'd say, no, it was to get excited. Um, pictures, you can see pictures and you can take it out of context. It could mean one thing and you take it a different way. Of course, body language is often taken out of context. I get accused of that. Angela picks on me sometimes. Uh-oh. <clears throat> because I don't show a lot of emotion in my face. And she'll be sharing something meaningful, and I'm just staring at her. And on the inside, I'm hearing her, and I'm excited about what she's saying, or I'm contemplating what she's saying. I'm processing what she's saying. I'm painting a picture of what she's saying in my mind. It's just not translating to my face. And literally hundreds and hundreds of times in our marriage, she has said, well, fine, and you don't care. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I wasn't showing. So it was, it was misunderstood. Jokes and satire can be misunderstood. I often sit here on this chair or stand on this stage and tell jokes and you don't laugh misunderstood. And then, of course, our text messages. Um, sometimes it doesn't matter that things are taken out of context and misunderstood, but sometimes it really does matter, and it can be devastating. I think the same thing with, with the Bible. We, we unintentionally, sometimes we, we say things that aren't in the Bible or say things that are, ah, it, it's taking something that we read in the Bible, and, you know, we're, and it's not saying it the way it really was meant in the Bible, but we... we unintentionally uh, say things in the Bible out of context. We take part of a verse and we separate it from the 
the meaning, what the chapter was all about, or what the context of the writing was all about, and we, we put the authority of God behind it, right, because it's the Bible. We make a nice little meme, and we post it on social media, and it's totally out of context, and then people share it hundreds and hundreds of times. And then when it fails, we blame God, right, because it came out of the Bible, although it was out of context. But as a people, we want to be, well, we want to be what 2 Timothy 2.15 says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And as a Christian, do you agree with that? Rightly handling the word of truth. So each week we're going to take a different verse that people take out of context, and we're going to try to reframe it, what it really means, and help you to understand it. Um, the verse we're going to use today uh, is one I think everybody has good intentions with. I think all of them, they do. But let's just give you an, an idea. Someone's going through a tough time, and you're listening to their story, and you would say something like this. Hey, come on, brother. Hey, come on, sister. God won't give you more than you can handle. You ever said that? You ever heard somebody say that? Yeah. Oh, it sounds so good. Man, it sounds so good. God won't give you more than you handle. Take it away from my mouth. I'm scratchy. Let's try that. You might have to turn me up a hair, Adam. God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, what does that even mean? What does it mean that God won't give you more than you can handle. Does that mean emotionally he won't give you more than you can handle? Or physically he won't give you more than you can handle? You know, he won't put too many weights on your barbells. Is that what that means? Um, you know, you say that to some people and they're like, wait a minute, have you seen the mess I'm in? What do you mean God won't give me more than I can handle? That doesn't make sense to me. You see sometimes on social media, some of these pics like this. Come on, Eva, let me see one. Yes, God won't give you more than you can handle, and that's what you feel like. Your whole world's burning down. But Oh, but thank you for the nice words, right? How about this one? God won't give you more than you can handle. This is the way students feel right now, first week of school. <laughs> oh, thanks, Pastor. God won't give me more than I can handle, except for this math teacher. Or how about this one? God won't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> I, I don't even know where that came from, but... She don't believe me. <laughs> it's a, it's a Angela, Angela took the grandbabies kayaking yesterday, and Briar has it in her head. That, and she's, wait, that's not the picture. Hold up, Eva. Briar has it in her head that there's snakes in our pond, and, well, there are, but, I mean, not all, everywhere. And she, she paddled herself into the, the bushes and started screaming and Angela didn't know what was going on. And finally, when she calmed her down, she was afraid the snakes were jumping in her boat. That's what the little girl with the orangutan right there. Yeah, that's, that's probably, there's Briar right there. So, what was the next one? Let's see the next one, Eva. God won't give you more. Yeah, yeah, thanks, brother. God won't give you more than you can handle. The first world problems right there. Had tickets to the ball game. One more, one more. Show me one more. Is there any more? She's not going to do it. Okay. All right. There's that joke. 
When I say I can't handle it, what am I saying? When I say that I can handle it, what am I saying? God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. What does that, what does that even mean? Am I supposed to be able to handle things? What if I can handle it? Do I even need God? What if I, am I supposed to just toughen up? Am I supposed to just be stronger? Am I supposed to be able to handle all that life throws at me? Has everybody that's gone before me handled things? Am I supposed to be like them? Just be like them. Am I supposed to be able to handle things? Is that what this is saying? Or is God partial? Is he going to give some people more than they can handle and not some others? Because some people have collapsed under the weight of their life. But me, oh, I'm blessed, so he's not going to give me more than I can handle. What is this saying? Is this an indictment of God? Is he really just or is he unjust? God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, I don't think it really means that. And we're going to look at the scripture that this comes from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says this, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted Beyond your ability. It's a little different when you read the scripture, right? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Of course, this verse is talking about temptations. Yet people often will use this scripture as if it's talking about trials or suffering. It's totally opposite. So what does this verse really mean? Well, let's look at it in context. In context, Paul's writing a letter to a church at Corinth that <clears throat> has a lot of internal issues. This is a church that is a young church, and there's probably more, more Gentiles in the church than there are Jews. And the Gentiles come from this background that's full of, full of idolatry and sensuality and selfishness, of course. And Paul's writing to a church that's known to be immature known to be arrogant, particularly spiritually arrogant. The church at Corinth was <clears throat> written about to be a church that felt that they were spiritually superior to other churches. And Paul's having to correct them. He's having to challenge them. And he uses scripture to compare the church in Corinth to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. And then he writes this scripture. He points out, to the church at Corinth that how God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He did miracles. He literally showed up as a pillar by fire at night and a pillar by cloud during the day. I mean, we would consider that a miracle, wouldn't we, if there was a big tornado guiding us everywhere and standing there when he wanted us to wait. And at night, there he was, a pillar of fire. We'd be like, God's doing something. He opened the Red Sea up and allowed them to walk through it on dry ground. Pretty impressive. He fed them every day. Every day of their lives, he provided food. Great miracle. And they witnessed all these things constantly in their lives. And yet, they fell into idolatry. They made a golden calf and worshipped it after God performed all these miracles. They fell into sexual immorality. 
As soon as they got close to another people group, the Moabites, they started having sex with their daughters. After God had displayed his love and his power and his purpose for their lives. And then after all these things, they grumbled. He was feeding them every day and they started complaining. We wish we had some meat. We just wish we had some meat. I'm so tired of this bread. Sounds like a bunch of juvenile little babies, right? And Paul's using this to contrast. He's saying, hey, church, hey, church, you're acting like a bunch of babies. He didn't say that, right? But that's exactly what he's implying here. When you read this scripture in context, you realize it's a little different than how we take it out of context. Verse 12, the scripture right before the one we're pointing out today says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Oh, you think you got your life all together. You think you're doing good. In your esteem, in your mind, you're on top. You're winning at this. You're in control. But let me warn you. When you look a little deeper, or you get an outside perspective, that's not something we like to do very often. Get an outside perspective. How many times you go to somebody and say, I want you to be honest with me. Tell me what you see in my life. Tell me what you see in my life. Don't, don't, don't hold back. Give me, the, give me the real deal stuff. Man, you do that sometimes, huh, Dustin. You know, there's not too many people like you. Not, not, not in really sincerely mean it. Sometimes people will come to me and say, Pastor Mike, shoot me straight. What do you see? And I tell them, and they're like, I don't see that. <laughs> well, okay. Didn't expect you would. <clears throat> I can brag on Justin. He has done this many times over the years. He's come to me and said, what do you see? And I've said it. And he said, thank you, Pastor Mike. I'm going to go work on that. That's a, that's a courageous man right there. But it's not common, right? I mean, who does that, right? Very, very few people do that. Because we think we have it all together. And Paul here, he says, oh, oh, take heed lest you fall. Because in reality, we are all still tempted in life by the same very things that the children of Israel were tempted by and the same things the church at Corinth that Paul is challenging and warning here. We're still tempted by those same things. Why do we think that we would be above what they were tempted by? Idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. So Paul does tell them, he says in the Full context of verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Everybody in this room has temptation in your life. And there's nothing you're tempted by that's not common to everybody else. Sometimes I think we really do. We look in the mirror and go, you're the only one that's being tempted by this. Well, and if we don't think that, we think we're the only ones that's falling to this temptation. We think everyone else has just licked it. They've beat it. Interestingly, statistics say that over 50% of men exercise pornography almost every day of their life. Yet we don't put ourselves, you know, we don't realize, okay, that's half the people I know. We think it's just us. We think we're the losers. Or flip the script, we think, well, I've overcome that. Everybody else should too. And we give no grace to the people who are still struggling. But temptation's a reality for everybody in some form or another. And Paul says here that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. 
But he doesn't stop there. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So let's talk about temptation for a moment since we're on the topic. I'm glad you asked. Where does temptation come from anyway? Where does temptation come from? Well, I can tell you, first of all, where it doesn't come from. Temptation does not come from God. God does not tempt us with evil. God does not tempt us with evil. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Um, blaming God for temptation is often a way for us to cope with our feelings of guilt, our feelings of shame, or possibly to justify our behavior. We blame God or to make sense of the challenges of the circumstance. It's easy to blame God for the temptation or maybe it's just out of ignorance, not knowing, not understanding. We don't want to take the blame. We don't want to take the responsibility for the temptation or falling to the temptation. So we want to point the finger and blame God, right? Blame somebody else. But here clearly James tells us it's not God. God doesn't tempt anyone with evil. On the contrary, God convicts us of our sins. So when we fall into temptation, there should be conviction of sin. I'm probably very accurate to think right now, even some of you are convicted of sins that are coming up in your mind right now. You know, pastor, why'd you have to preach this today? But, but, but be grateful for conviction. As a matter of fact, I would be worried if you're not convicted. If there's not conviction in your life about the things you're doing and the, 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 the activity of your life, if you're not convicted, that's, that's reason for, for concern. The very presence of the Holy Spirit brings a certain measure of conviction. It's, it's a navigational device. It's a course correction. God helping you get back on track. You've run into the ditch. It's like the little uh, navigation tool on your phone. It says, course correction, course correction. You need to turn around here. I've got uh, one of those I use sometimes. And Every now and then you take the wrong turn, or maybe deliberately you choose to take the wrong turn. Then it just keeps saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. You're like, I got it, I got it, I got it, okay. God's saying, turn around, turn around, turn around, repent, repent, repent. Be worried if he doesn't tell you because you're going to end up in another state that you didn't plan on going to. God doesn't tempt us, but he does convict us. He convicts us because he loves us. Sometimes we wonder if God loves us. If he's convicting you, he loves you. Hebrews tells us God disciplines those he loves. He chastises those he loves. He corrects those he loves. If you ever wonder, Lawson, does God love me? If he's convicting you, if he's correcting you, yes, he loves you. He loves you too much to allow you to continue on to destruction. 
So if temptation does not come from God, where does it come from? Well, first of all, I would say temptations come for our own desires. That same scripture in James says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so there's something on the inside of us, part of that sin nature, part of that fallen state that each person's born with, right? Our condition when we're born, that that trains the flesh, that, that inspires or entices the flesh. The flesh, it's saying, I want it. I want it. It's like that ice cream in the freezer in the middle of the night. I want it. I want it right now. I can't stop myself. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. I know what it was. It was just my, my fleshly desire saying, I want that ice cream in the freezer in the middle of the night. No, there's something in us that drives us, that desire. To sin. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, right? The desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but is from the world. There's these desires in us to sin. Everybody has them. Everybody faces those challenges on a daily basis. I would like to think the stronger I get in God, right? In other words, the more I read the word, the closer I am to God, the more I pray and worship, the less I would be tempted. But unfortunately, that's not true. As a matter of fact, and maybe this is just my experience, but it seems the closer I get to God, the more I'm tempted. The closer I am to God, the more I'm diving into God, and the more spiritually hungry I am, and the, the closer I feel to God, it seems there's more distractions from the flesh. It's as if the flesh is opposed to God. And that doesn't mean there's more sin. This means there's more, more temptation. More temptation. But if left unchecked, it says in James, then desire when it has conceived. When it has conceived. It's an action step. There's action involved. There's a choice involved. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a choice. That desire on the inside for whatever it is, for that new phone, for that new car, that, that you can't afford, it's to, to spend that money. Y'all know that, that swiping a credit card can be a sin? It's not a sin in and of itself, but it can be. If it's, if it's something you do impulsively to get a release, oh, I feel better when I do it. It's no different than gambling. It's no different than many other sins that I won't mention from the stage today. It, it can be opening that XXX site. It can be, 
can be lying, it can be stealing. It's a choice that we make to sin. It's conceived, and, and it gives birth to sin. The action is what makes it a sin, not the temptation. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is an indication that sin is on the way if we choose it, if you want it. If you want it worse than you want God and his presence and his holiness. It's a choice that we make. It gives birth to sin, and then if not checked repeatedly, that sin when it is fully grown, which, right, if you've raised a child, you know the child is not fully grown when they're two or five or seven. Literally, it takes years. I'm, I'm so thankful God put that in here because otherwise we would be tempted to think that after we've sinned two or three times that we're lost again. Well, I got saved, but then I sinned two or three times and now I'm lost again. I'm no longer saved well, no, it says fully grown. That means at minimum 18 years. I don't know. I, was, I just made that up. Don't listen to that. But a long time. How's that? A long time. But you know, a lot of people do that. A lot of people sin and then sin again, and then it becomes comfortable to sin. And then what's scary is it no longer brings conviction, and so it's easier to sin and the temptation leads to sin, leads to sin, leads to sin, leads to sin. And whether you agree with me or not, I believe one day it is possible to no longer feel God in your life and then sin even more to a point where it's like you're no longer saved. Whether you are or not will be determined on God's time, right? And his day of judgment, but sometimes at the end of the service, you've heard me, if you've been around a while, I'll say, if you've never been saved or if you got saved at one point in time, but you're so far from God today, you don't feel safe. And I invite people to respond at that moment because I know that a lot of people got saved when they were eight years old. Nothing wrong with that. There are people in this room today that got saved when they were eight years old. You're still safe, still, still living for God. But there are people who got saved at eight years old. They, they walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer. They got baptized. They loved God. They gave their life to God, and they, they lived for God. And maybe at 13, 14, 15, or anywhere in that window, the temptations hit so hard, and they fell into the temptations, and they conceived sin and conceived sin. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves 25, 35 years old, 20 years removed from being saved, 30 years removed from being saved, still living in sin, and then they get convicted, maybe for the first time in 30, 35 years, and they find themselves, because a friend at work invited them, they find themselves sitting in a church like this, and the presence of God and the love of God reminds them that there's a better way, and they need to get saved, saved from their life of sin, right? So however you want to look at it, I'm not going to split hairs over it. Temptation, once conceived, leads to sin, and sin, if not checked, eventually leads to death, which death, we believe, is separation from God eternally. Or hell, right? And so James is warning here. So temptation comes from our 
desires, our desires. Not only that, but temptations come from the devil. Now, Matthew 4, 3 labels the devil as the tempter. And we know Satan is the father of lies. He has nothing good for you. Where God is, is never going to tempt you to do evil, that's all that Satan does. And so not only somebody, I don't remember who coined this, but somebody said that uh, the flesh was first cousin to the devil. It's like they're kinfolk. Uh, but the devil is the tempter. He's going to tempt you. He's going to lure you. It's like fishing. That fish eats these little things swimming in the water. The big fish eats the little fish, right? And so this thing that swims by and it looks like it looks like a little fish and the big fish eats it, but it's not a little fish. It's a lure that the fisherman threw in the water and the big fish eats it and he gets caught by the fisherman. It's being tempted to eat and it looks just like something maybe you would normally do. Temptation happens when the devil plays off of your pure desires. So I have desires in me and some of those desires are evil. Some of those desires are pure. Not all my desires, not all your desires are evil. There are pure desires on the inside of us. You know, for instance, uh, I have a desire to advance in life. That's pure. I mean, not at your expense, just in doing, doing what's right and working hard. I have a desire to advance, to progress in life, but the devil will take that desire and he will pervert it, twist it just a little bit. And now it becomes selfish ambition. Now at your expense. I'm hungry for food and I, I, I'm, I'm, I like to eat. Right? And then the devil can tempt us into gluttony to where we're eating obsessively. I have a desire for uh, sexual intercourse in the context of marriage. That's a pure desire. God made sex. Sex is God's idea. The devil tweaks it. And now it becomes sexual immorality. You see how closely related those things are. And if he can't get you to commit sexual immorality, he'll get you to think sex is bad. And then it affects your relationships and your marriage. I have a desire to have healthy relationships. The devil tweaks that to where I become obsessive, codependent on people. I have a desire for health, to, to pursue health, right? I want to be healthy. Yay! Who wants to be healthy? We want to be healthy. Nobody's going to raise their hand. You think I'm going to sign you up for the gym? No. We want to be healthy, but then all of a sudden it becomes an obsession, right? And it's idolatry. That's what he does. He tweaks our innocent desires, our pure desires, and he makes them sinful. I have a desire for justice, but that when the enemy perverts that, it becomes vengeance, I think it's important we ask ourselves when we're tempted, how is this temptation trying to deceive me? Where is the lie in this temptation that I'm not seeing? What's the root of this temptation? Is it my desires that's leading me astray? Can I trust myself in that? That's why it's so good to have relationships. I love small groups for many reasons, but this, this one is so you can vet, vet out some of the desires that you have. You know, when you get into a small group of people, Laney, you've sat in circles before many times. I've picked on Justin, I've picked on Lawson, now I'm picking on Laney. Where's the rest of your kids? We'll get it over with. 
No, lady, you've sat in circles many, many times in your life. Small groups, you've led small groups. And you know, once you begin to trust those ladies and they begin to trust you, you'll talk. And you can say, you know, ladies, I've really been struggling with this. And you lay it on the table because you're not sure. You're not sure if it's pure or if it's uh, a little, little sideways, right? So you lay it on the table. And, and then the other people in the group, or if it's not you, somebody lays it on the table. And the other ladies in the group can say, oh, lady, that doesn't sound pure. That doesn't sound healthy for you. You know, and so in your mind, you had talked yourself into it, right? You had justified the action, and you, oh, no, I need to do this. But then you laid it on the table. That relationships, if you don't have relationships, you're left to yourself, isolated. The enemy can easily just tweak what you're thinking, and you're in the ditch. But if you're in relationships, healthy relationships, we check one another. We hold one another accountable. We, we encourage one another. We, 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 can, we can vet out the things in our life that we're tempted with. We will sin a lot less. Not only that, but then we got to face those ladies or men again the next week, and they're going to ask us, so how'd you do on that thing? And we're like, well, I did it anyway. <laughs> or you know what? Because y'all pointed it out to me, I held true. I didn't do it. I took your advice. Wow, what powerful words. I listened to the Holy Spirit's conviction and I chose not to follow my desires. I listened to the Holy Spirit when he said that was wrong and I didn't follow my desires. I realized that I couldn't handle it and that I needed the presence of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and I needed relationships to be able to make it without falling to temptation. I needed you. I needed people that would be honest with me. I needed to be closer to God because I can't do it. The good news in this message is that God does make a way of escape. Remember we said in verse 13, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I believe this, that temptations are ongoing opportunities for God to prove his faithfulness to us. How do you know God loves you? Because he's faithful to you. Yeah, come on up, Nancy. How do you know God loves you? Because he is faithful to you. Even when you're not faithful, he is faithful. How do you know he's faithful? Because he always provides a way of escape. Here we are drowning in the sea of temptation, right? Out in the ocean, drowning in the sea. We're flailing in the sea of temptation and God throws us a lifeline. He throws us that rope. He throws us that lifeline. And gives us the opportunity to grab a hold. You don't have to drown. You don't have to drown. You don't. It's literally that crazy, that simple. I'm flailing in the middle of the ocean and I don't have to drown. I can grab the lifeline. Yet so many people in their minds think they have to drown. They're up. I just got to go with it. Just got to go with it. It's what I've always done. I've always just gone with it. I'm going to go with it again. Oh, well. Yet, there it is, the lifeline. It's right there beside us. And it's an opportunity for us 
to prove our surrender and obedience to God. So temptation is an ongoing opportunity for God to show you his faithfulness. And temptation is an ongoing opportunity for you to surrender to God and prove your obedience. That is a father-son, father-daughter relationship working together. God being a faithful father and me being a faithful, obedient, surrendered son. That's a healthy connection. That's a healthy relationship. Because you can't do it on your own. And God knows that. He never meant for you to do it on your own. Today, God's reaching out a hand, a strong, fatherly hand, a good, healthy hand. He's saying, come on, grab my hand. Quit trying to do this on your own. You weren't meant to do it on your own. That's the love of a father right there. A father that's present, is there, that protects. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to overcome. But he's not going to make you. You've got to reach out and grab that hand. You've got to surrender to him. Not just right now, but in every temptation. He's always there saying, you don't have to do this. Come on, grab my hand. I'll pull you out of this. I believe this, that ultimately we do not have the capacity The enemy is a liar, right? And I believe in most of our minds, the enemy has twisted this and perverted this so much that we don't even know what to think. But, but ultimately, we do not have the capacity to overcome sin. No more than you have the capacity to overcome death. Sin and death. Think of them together, okay? Sin and death, because sin, sin leads to death. Do you have the capacity to overcome death? No. The world is trying to make that happen. You know, there, there are many people researching how to overcome death. Everybody wants to live forever, but it's not going to happen because we don't have, mankind does not have the capacity to overcome death, right? We believe that. We would all agree with that. And why do we think we can overcome sin? Mankind cannot overcome sin. That is a perversion, a lie from the enemy. We do not have the capacity to overcome sin. If we did, we wouldn't need Jesus. The enemy has tweaked it to think, make you think you can overcome sin. Be good. You can be good. You can do it. Oh, you didn't. Oh, try harder. The only way to endure temptation, the only way to overcome sin is by the way of escape that God has provided us, and that is through Jesus Christ, through his son. You were born into sin, but the sin nature, your condition was condemned from day one born into sin because of Adam's sin. There's absolutely no way you can be good enough to get into heaven. There's absolutely no way you can be good enough to please God. That's what he says in his Bible. Yet he knew that and he provided a way of escape, not just for salvation, but for every temptation. He provided a way of escape and that is Jesus. Jesus Christ came as a sinless man, walked the earth, died on a cross and took on the sin that you can't escape, took on the sin that condemns every one of us, 
on himself. He took our penalty. And when we receive his forgiveness, I think that that might be part of it too. Maybe we've preached it wrong all along. We think that, uh, we think that once we pray a prayer and we're saved and we're all good. And in some ways, we are, right? We're saved. But then in some ways, we're not saved until we get there. In some ways, we're saved. Yes, we are saved. We're justified. We've taught that before. But then there's the walking out of our salvation. You know what that looks like? It's receiving the Father's hand and it's saying, I need you. You don't say, I need you and get saved and now I don't need you until I get to heaven. Because temptation lurks at the door. We say, I need you every day of our life. I need you. He is the helping hand. He is the way of escape. And the enemy so doesn't want you to hear that. He wants you to think that you can do this without him, without Jesus. And you can't do it. Come on, let's pray together. Father, right now, I, I humble myself and I, I ask God that you would open my eyes, open our eyes to the truth so that we're not looking through our own personal filters anymore, that we're seeing straight, God, into the truth of your love and your word where it says that there's nothing we can do to, to please you on our own, that, that, that you've paid the price for us, that all we have to do is receive the love of Christ. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus. To grab a hold of that open hand. I pray today for those in this room right now who are far from you. I pray, God, that today their eyes would be open to your love. To your grace, mercy. I pray today, God, that we would be able to see the lies of the enemy for what they are. be able to turn to you if you're far from God today he's reaching out his hand and he's saying come home come on if that's you I want to lead you in a simple prayer a simple prayer of repentance if you don't know if you're right with God you can pray this too Just say something like this say God in heaven please forgive me of my sins I turn from them today and I ask you to save me. I ask you to come live inside of me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Show me your love today. Tell him this, say, God, I give you all of me today and I receive all of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Real quick, just look this way prayed that prayer today. God forgives your sins. He forgives your sins. And now he's reaching that hand out and he's saying, come on, let me show you 
how to live this new adventure. Let me show you how to live this life, not in your own strength, but in Jesus' strength. Amen.